1: It is cooler around the province today, and some showers are in wildfire areas, but also some thunder showers this afternoon, especially in areas just east of Kamloops. We are also getting a better idea about some of the damage from the McDougall Creek wildfire in West Kelowna, which is now a complex fire, and some of the evacuation orders that have been lifted. I expect the number of partial and full losses to be less than 90. Less than 70
2: in the city of West Kelowna and less than 20 in WFN territory.
1: I hope that provides the public with some of the scope and scale of what we're dealing with. That is Jason Broland, West West Kelowna's fire chief, explaining that uh, fewer than 90 buildings have been significantly damaged Uh, Homes that is, about 190 buildings in total being significantly damaged or destroyed. We do have one victim, though, and it really doesn't matter what the numbers are if it happens to you. That person that is joining us, our next guest, is Christine Elliott, who lost everything in that fire in West Kelowna. And she is also with Sharice Marino, her daughter, who is helping to raise money and make things return to as normal as they can be post-fire. Thank you so much to both of you, Christine and Sharice, for joining us.
2: Good morning. good morning, thank you, Bruce.
1: Well, good afternoon, actually, but uh it, <laughs> a little confused. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Understandable indeed when you go through something like this. Time is one of those things that could just be lost. I'm going to start with you Christine tell me a little bit about what happened to the best of your knowledge because you were moved out of the area but what happened to your home and your belongings
2: Well we were evacuated last Thursday um, as evacuate evacuation order at about 730 p.m and at that point there was no indication for us in the surrounding immediate area that there would be any threat but of course when you have an evacuation order you go because the professionals know the fire and perhaps know more about weather patterns and secure risk and and sort of say okay you guys got to go so at that point it wasn't like oh the house is going to burn to the ground so uh, just grab what you need, like a suitcase with some clothes for a day or two and important papers and uh, your phone or whatever, medication, basic emergency stuff and go. So that's what we did and um, managed for for myself. I managed, I was making a new path in my life, a change in my life at my age and I Very recently decided that okay, coming back to Kelowna, maybe becoming a permanent resident. I secured some some uh, appropriate place to hang my hat and my belongings in in a friend's home, and um, just you're going looking for potentially work a couple of days before the evacuation. And so all my things were in the home. And the home itself is, all that's standing is a chimney, pretty well evaporated everything. And so Thursday when we left, like I say, it wasn't like, oh, the flames are right there and they're going to hit you in 15 minutes type thing. So it was an absolute, like a dragon of fire. Basically, I think the wind probably changed direction later on in the evening the, and the winds were 30, 40, 50 kilometers and gusting, and it was just like a dragon of fire came down from the skies and just torched along with the wind everything and must have just come down and vaporized the entire home and actually four other homes alongside where we were. And we found this out the next day, and... um yeah, just too much to really take in for all of a sudden you plan a new path and and <laughs> you find some some suitable situation where you can function and that you can afford and you can go forward in your life. Yeah. And then in the space of a few hours, it's like that path ended and you're jumping off the cliff and then all of a sudden, well, what do you do?
1: Christine, where but in West happened, Kelowna, whereabouts uh, was the house
2: It's just down from from Bear Creek Park.
1: Now, from what I remember hearing and following on Thursday night, and uh, following it as closely as I can from the lower mainland, uh, there was a moment where people started to talk like it was getting better, and uh, the wind had changed direction, and it almost early in the evening looked like things were going to be okay. Did you get that sense before? before everything went uh, went far oh, to the worst?
2: Ab- absolutely, because otherwise, if you figured it was going to be worse, you would have done a lot more at that time. The wind was coming from a southerly direction and, and not really gusting. So basically, it's taken the fire in a different direction but the northwesterly winds and probably the fire department officials and the meteorologists could anticipate this change in wind direction and that was probably the reason why the order was given so probably later on in the evening and the wind changed coming from the northwest which changed the whole equation it was like puff the magic dragon it was I've never seen anything like it in my entire life it I was here in 2003 in Kelowna when they had that large fire. And yes, it was a significant fire, but nothing like this. This is like something out of a movie. So fast, so brutal. Just everywhere, ash falling in the air. Today, after five days, is the first day that you can actually see any type of clear sky whatsoever because there's a slight wind clearing some of the smoke. But it was so fast, so brutal, so so incredible. It was like something from another world. And so it's very hard to explain. But at that point in time, when we left, you would never have anticipated it. Absolutely not.
1: Christine, it was like hell on earth from all accounts that I have heard, especially in the neighbourhood you're talking about. When did totally. you get an idea, a good idea that everything had been lost?
2: I think Friday, the next day, thanks uh, to um, somebody that was in the facility that managed to take a picture, and we actually got a picture of the only thing left standing in the home was a chimney. Everything else was basically vaporized. The uh, crazy thing about it is that you can see some trees not that far, just a number of feet not far from you with still greenery on them, which means when that wind came and swept, it swept the The flames in the direction, it didn't matter that there was anything to burn beside the house. It burned whatever direction the wind took it at that point in time. And it must have been absolutely phenomenal and raced down at a speed that you can't even imagine.
1: Christine, you paint a good but terrible picture at the same time. And thanks for sharing your story. When you first started to see indications of this destruction, you talk about the chimney on the house being the only thing that's standing. Run me through some of the emotions you had.
2: Um, that's difficult. It's, it's, it's such a shock. It's to try and process such trauma and to process such a loss in such a short period of time is uh, very difficult. It's not like making a decision you're going out for breakfast in the morning. It's totally different. I'm still trying to process and face reality for what it is and what it means to me, and what it means for my whole life. And it's, it's devastating, but hard to process. That will take some time to go, okay, well, what's next? Which part of this cliff that I've jumped off of. Am I going to land on? Will I land on a, a nice safe shelf somewhere and be rescued? Will I? You d- you don't know. So you're just slowly with time, time to process, um, times where you think of all the things that you've lost, you know, mem- memories, my mother's ashes, yeah. you know, all sorts of things going, oh, well, I don't have, you know, you don't have any clothes. You don't have anything. You, you have You lost pictures. Oh everything. Absolutely everything. You know, we're talking like you're like you would go home and all the things you have in your home. The gun just disappeared. Every piece of clothing, every picture, every everything. And it's really hard to process that in a short period of time. It's it's a bit
1: it's not easy. Yeah, Christine, thanks for sharing that. Stay with us. We were hearing the story from Christine Elliott, who lost everything in that fire in West Kelowna. And she shared some of the impacts with us, seeing the pictures of the house basically gone except for a chimney. Well, somebody that's coming to help out is Charisse Marino, Christine's daughter, who has organized a GoFundMe campaign to support her mother. And that's great news. Both Christine and Charisse are with us. Thanks so much, both of you, for staying with us. Um, I want to bring in Charisse a little bit uh, just to talk about First of all, sheisse, uh, what your impression was, what your feelings were when you first started to hear about the fire situation in Kelowna and then start to think about your mother in West Kelowna?
3: Hi um, well, I like, like my mom was saying we were there at the original fire in two thousand three, so uh, you know, I never thought any fire could really compare um so. When I heard that the fire was behind their house, I thought, you know, there's no way, it's far enough away, it's, it's not coming. Um, of course, I'm in Edmonton, so it's phone calls and texts. Um, and then uh, when she told me she was evacuated, um, you know, I'm like, oh, oh, crap, maybe it's starting to get serious. I'm I'm logging on to Castanet, refreshing, you know, TikTok, anything that I can really do to try and find uh, out information about what's going on over there. Um, I had a, I had booked a uh, booked a flight for for Saturday. Um, and then Saturday morning was watching the flights just cancel one after another. Cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. Um, you know they closed down the airspace. It's it's getting worse. The fires jumped jumped the lake. You know there there was talks that it might even close down the road north out of Kelowna. So I'm sitting here being like, you know what, I'm the house is gone, trying to process that from out here and I've already said, you know what, she's she's gonna come here, she'll she'll come live with us. Um, we're gonna try and rebuild and, and go from there. And uh I I heard I understood her situation and and uh you know, I knew what exactly she had lost. I I yeah. I can wrap my head around that because it's part of your life me, too. Me growing up exactly that was everything that I grew up with, you know, beds, couches, end tables, bedding, blankets, pictures that were on my wall growing up. Like it's
1: it's all gone. Cherise, I know that a lot of that can never be replaced. The memories, the photographs, uh, you know, so many items that are held important to a family. But at least there is something that can be done. You have set up a GoFundMe page. Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, I think Cherise uh, just dropped off. Christine, I'm going to go back to you, and thanks. uh, You're still on the line. We did uh, lose your daughter. A GoFundMe page has been set up. Tell me the most you know about that, uh, what your daughter has done with that.
2: Well... I guess that was a great initiative on her part because, like I say, I'm, I'm not young. I'm 70 years old, so it's not like you're 24 years old and you can get things going in your life for the next 20-odd years. It's not going to happen. I'm on just regular, you know, uh, pension and CPP, don't have assets, not money in the bank. What do you do when you lose everything, but I was in could have I secured accommodation with my friends that was affordable and doable at least for a temporary time, I could t- try and find a job for three days a week to supplement my income. So and I the could good live news like the here normal.
1: is uh, Christine, we do have Charisse back. Bad news is only about oh. 10 seconds left. But: Yeah. The address for the GoFundMe page is or the uh, how people can find it.
3: Um, I can share the link. It's kind of just all over social media. Um, I don't know exactly the link to it, but we will uh, track it down and share it it at CKNW
1: on X, the former Twitter and make sure that, uh, we've got it out there. So we will share it through X. Thank you both Christine Elliott and Sharice Marino for telling your story.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: And her premier, along with two of his cabinet ministers, David Eby, took uh, Bruce Ralston, the forest minister, and emergency minister, m- emergency management minister, Bowen Ma, on a field trip to some of the forest fire devastation areas to, earlier today, getting a first-hand look in some of the context behind the stories that we've been hearing about with a fire that ravaged many areas like Ground Zero, West Kelowna on Thursday night, and continued to be a problem right through the weekend. Things today are a little bit better in some of the areas, especially around West Kelowna. And that allows some of the evacuees to get a handle on just how bad the damage is and which homes or buildings in the areas have been badly damaged or even destroyed. Earlier today, Jason Broland, the fire chief in West Kelowna, had a chance to update us a little bit.
4: I mentioned that I felt as though our evacuation uh, was orderly, but that I desperately hoped that everyone made it out. And today, to the best of our knowledge, using the best techniques that we have at our disposal, um, I can
2: share that news today.
1: Okay, and Premier David Eby is expected to provide a bit of an update to reporters this hour. It's unknown if that's going to happen or not because schedules always change, especially when there are flight plans involved and he is taking a helicopter tour of the area. But with all these updates comes a language of its own, and some of these wildfire terms... Uh, are a little bit difficult for the average Canadian to really understand. And understanding some of the challenge here is UBC's Department of Forests and Conservation Sciences and people like our next guest, who is Dr. Kelsey Kobs-Gerbitz, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of British Columbia. She joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: You know, it is almost a language of its own. I've been covering forest fires for three decades now as a journalist, and I don't know all the terms. Uh, When did your department kind of figure this as being a bit of a challenge?
5: Yeah, that's a great question, and certainly I think something that we can all relate to. Um, You know, it's with any type of emergency or disaster, there's always language that gets used by officials, That's really important part of the way that they communicate, Um, but our group took a particular interest in helping the public understand um, some of those terms a little bit better, because it's it's really important that the public understand you know what the officials are talking
1: about too. I think so, and especially when it comes to a developing fire and for people to know what sort of actions to take. So maybe that's a good place to start. Why don't we talk about uh, some of the evacuation orders, alerts, and some of the dangers around there? What are terms that we really should know?
5: Yeah, definitely. So evacuation alert and order are two different things. Uh, An evacuation alert is really to warn you to get prepared. Get your to go bags ready, uh, get uh, copies of any important documents, um, maybe pack your car with essentials for yourself and your family should you have to leave at a moment's notice. An evacuation order is a notice, an official notice um, to actually leave your home or leave the area that you're in. And so those are slightly different. An alert is about being prepared. And an order is, it's time to go.
1: Yeah, the order is get out. The alert, uh, I guess, is be prepared to get out.
5: Mm-hmm. And and noting that though that you know it's really important to be prepared long before an evacuation alert is ever issued. I think that's part of the responsibility of of all British Columbians is to be prepared well in advance of a fire in your area because that will make a situation like a real wildfire and um, having an evacuation alert, you know, much less
1: scary. We've heard and uh, share many of the status updates on social media, and they've got a whole bunch of uh, wildfire status uh, language that is its own sort of language, like out of control and being held and under control. Let's go through some of those because, uh, You know, I think that's where people start to try to gauge just how bad a situation is with a fire that's already underway. So the worst of it, I guess, is the out-of-control. What do we mean by that?
5: Yeah, so an out-of-control wildfire um, is one that is either very new um, and they haven't put suppression resources on it, for example, or a fire that is not responding to uh, current fire suppression efforts. So the status of a a wildfire can certainly change, but out of control is often um, the very first um, status that a wildfire will receive. And if it is very difficult to control or um, needs more resources, then it will continue to be called out of
1: control. Then if you want to de-escalate concern, I guess there are two other terms, and there must be a difference in priority behind the term one being held, and the term too under control, those ones are the ones that get me. What is the difference between the two of those?
5: Yeah, so being held is um, certainly a measure of kind of saying, okay, we've established these pre-identified boundaries beyond yeah. which this fire probably won't burn. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the fire isn't going to spread anymore, It's just that it's not going to spread beyond those predetermined boundaries. And those boundaries are predetermined based on, uh, you know, potential risks, uh, changes in risk to values or property, things like that. So we're holding it in kind of imagine a a line on a map. We're holding it in this specific area. If we move to um, the, the next one down that you mentioned, under control, that really means it's not going to spread any further. There's going to be no further growth. We are confident in in um, it not being spread, and the suppression efforts have been successful.
1: By the way, I think by the time we get to the next one, extinguished or out, it is hardly ever a news story, and you don't hear that one all that much.
5: No, you certainly don't. Um, and I think it's it's really interesting if, you know, there's always so many... Fires that are, are dominating our attention that are wildfires of note or those that are out of control. But um, what's really um, impressive and, and a testament to the hard work that firefighters do is all of those fires that have already been put out.
1: We're talking with Dr. Kelsey Kobs-Gerbitz, a postdoctoral research fellow at UBC working with the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences there. And Kelsey, if I was to take a look at the language on the whole, do you think we're doing an okay job in communication? Or do you see any sort of terminology that needs to be adjusted so we have a better understanding when we communicate?
5: I think it's, you know, it's really, a, um, it's such a complex, wildfire itself is such a complex topic. And I think most of us get exposed to thinking about wildfire Uh, when it's a wildfire season, when we're seeing fires in the news or fires being suppressed. But there's a whole set of language that also comes around um, managing wildfires, trying to prevent them ahead of time, trying to be prepared for them. Um, And so those are some of the areas that maybe we don't hear the language um, often enough. And so things like prevention are really those measures that we take to limit um, any more fire starts. You might see things like um, backcountry bans, so that we don't start more fires accidentally. Um, you might see things like um, fuels treatments, which is altering um, forest fuels, reducing uh, the load of fuels, so that fires are less likely to burn. In extreme cases, um, on the other hand, preparedness is also a really important part of this, and preparedness is what you as an individual can do. Like I mentioned, having that to-go bag, having an evacuation plan for your family. At the community level, it's about what is your community wildfire um, management plan? Where might you be doing those fuels treatments? Where might you be establishing safe evacuation areas? Um, so those prevention and preparedness pieces are also a really important part of this conversation.
1: Our guest has been and continues to be Dr. Kelsey Cobbs-Gerbitz, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of British Columbia, working with those in the Department of Forest and Conservation Sciences. We've been talking about some of the language that is used when we start to hold news conferences or else send out social media advisories Uh, for people that may be the subject of alerts or evacuations. Kelsey, thanks so much for being with us still. We heard from the Premier, by the way, one of the terms that we heard a little bit last week is this idea of a crown fire. Very few people understand exactly what that means, but what are we talking about there?
5: Yeah, so a crown fire is a term that's used to describe where the fire is actually burning. Um, If you think about a forest, you have the crowns at the very tops of the trees. And so essentially a crown fire is a fire that's spread up into the tops of the trees, and it can often move from tree crown to tree crown. That contrasts um, a fire that is considered a surface fire. So a surface fire would be a fire that's moving closer to the ground and has not necessarily moved up into the tree crowns. So we use those two terms to describe kind of where the fire is actually occurring within the forest structure. Um, But we can also kind of associate um, the severity of that fire with those terms. So severity is a measure of um, the above ground biomass loss, so how, how much is actually being burned, so a surface fire is going to be less likely to um, maybe kill old big old trees, and it 'll you know stay in the in the shrubby layer in the ground layer the surface layer
1: absolutely a crown fire
5: yeah crown fire is often um, moving much faster and um, killing more many more trees in
1: the process and that 's the reason why we 're so concerned when we hear that term, even if we mm-hmm. didn 't understand it. After this summer, which has been a brutal summer in the forests uh, in our province, I would imagine that there is area for even more research. If you were to take a look at one area quickly where you think that we've got to do a little bit more research, what would that one area be?
5: That's a really great question. And I think um, we're really coming to understand how complex these wildfire situations are and the really unique ways that different communities experience wildfires um, and interact with them. And so I think a, a really kind of important and promising area of research is understanding the the wide diversity of communities that exist across BC, what they think needs to be done about wildfire, and how different levels of government um, from you know municipal or First Nation government um, to provincial government and regional, how different sectors can support communities to be more resilient to wildfires before they ever even start.
1: Well, thank you so much for your research efforts and best of luck, uh, you know, for the coming year as uh, you look at uh, having more grad students, I guess, around. Kelsey, thank you.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Here's it in for Jazz Joe Hall. Some breaking news coming out of a news availability by Premier David Eby in West Kelowna, where he was joined by Emergency Management Minister Bowen Ma and Forest Minister Bruce Ralston. That news is as of midnight tonight, BC will start to lift the travel orders. Put in place over the weekend because of the wildfire situation, except for one area. That one area is West Kelowna. Last hour, if you were listening, you would have heard the story of Christine Elliott. We had a chance to talk with her about her story. She is a senior and she lost everything when her house went up in flames late Thursday night or early Friday morning in West Kelowna. And her daughter has set up a gofundme page. We have posted the link for that gofundme page along with the interview itself that's at @cknw on X the former Twitter or you can go to my own X account the former Twitter and I'm at bruce on air That's at Bruce on air. And it's a chance to maybe kick in a little bit of support for one person, a senior who has lost everything due to the wildfire situation. So it is ongoing and we're getting more tales of those. And I expect even more stories to come up during the days ahead. Let's shift pace a little bit to a brand new topic, but one that is on the minds of many people right now, and that is home sales along with the housing crisis right across the country, by the way, but especially true in Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. However, all that being said, there is a headline, and it comes out of a new report, at least one claim, that detached home prices in Vancouver and the Fraser Valley this year so far are down. And according to this, a report by Remax, which tracked the average price and sales activity for 82 districts within Toronto and also the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver and the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board, it found that about 93% of detached homes in Toronto and the Vancouver area posted a decline in value compared to the same period. Back in 2022, of course, this coincides with an increase in interest rates, as we all know. But is this decline here to stay or is it in fact real? Well, somebody that I think always has a really good handle on this on the front lines is realtor and founder of the Soretsky Group, Steve Soretsky. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. So we're seeing this one report, and I've heard anecdotally in some areas of a dip in prices. What are you seeing?
4: Um, Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that, report. I mean, it depends on sort of all these metrics that you're looking at, but to sort of simplify things, uh, you know, the detached housing market peaked February, March of last year in 2022, you know, went through a decent size correction, anywhere from 10 to 20%, depending on your sort of uh, sub market there in the lower mainland and really since basically the calendar turned over um, prices have gotten you know they've gone back up very very close to the recent peaks of last year and I'd say that uh, you know we're starting to roll back over again ever so slightly uh, but I would say actually on the year year to date uh, you know detach and, and house prices are actually up on the year which is uh, incredibly surprising given where mortgage rates are at.
1: Yeah, and that's what surprised me when I saw the story about this REMAX uh, report. I thought, uh, really, um, year to year, it always depends, as you say, on what numbers you look at. And I imagine you probably can find a dip in there somewhere. And that dip probably coincides with one of the interest rate um, uh, announcements, I guess. But uh, where are we now heading into the fall, do you think?
4: Yeah, so I mean, let's like we can unpack that a little bit further, which is essentially, uh, you know, the market came off again towards sort of the summer into the fall of last year as the Bank of Canada was aggressively raising rates, you know, 100 basis points at a time, really shocking the market. Uh, and so that we saw prices coming off. And this year, um, despite mortgage rates actually being higher than they were last year when prices were dropping, actually up and the reason that they're up is is honestly I think it's solely an inventory story so if you look at the number of homes that are currently available for sale on the MLS, you're currently sitting at a 20 year low in Greater Vancouver Uh, and so it's just really hard to get price declines when sellers have no competition to reduce their prices you still have enough people out there buying so now what I think what's happening is again as mortgage rates start to creep back up as inflation concerns are still elevated Um, demand is weak. Like I I would not say it's a strong market, but you just have new listings basically haven't been coming to market. And so uh, I think what we're seeing right now is very few listings, very few sales, not a lot of activity, but price is holding given where inventories are at 20 year lows. I think that as we head into the fall, we'll get a, we'll get a bunch more listings coming on September, October, which is a seasonal thing. And I do think that uh, that has a, a decent probability of putting some downwards pressure on prices. Given that mortgage rates today, I mean, most people are going and taking out three year fixed mortgages. You're looking at about 6.2,
1: 6.3%. Yeah. In fact, um, th- we're hearing more stories of that. And there is. Uh well, still a lot of people on the sidelines taking a look and trying to figure it out and trying to make sense of it all. But for you, as somebody that uh, is plugged into the front line, hear stories from people jumping into the market or switching from one place to another, are you coming across more nervous Nellies or confident Charlies? What do you think?
4: No, I think definitely think people are nervous out there. I think the people that are transacting in this market right now are people that they basically they have to move, which is you know, they're a young family that, you know, had another child and, and they need more space, they need that third bedroom. Um, you know, where we're seeing like very little demand is obviously the investor side. Uh, you know, that 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 segment's completely gone. Um, but it's just the people that have to move, right? You know, life happens, divorces happen, job job changes, uh, estate sales. So those transactions are happening. It's sort of the Peripheral side of things, or maybe it's a first-time home buyer that's spent the last seven years building up the down payment, and you know they're they're tired of renting, and so those people are transacting. But uh, all in all, I think there's uh, there's a lot of reasons to be nervous, which is you know the highest mortgage rates in 20 years, uh, and prices that really haven't adjusted to reflect that.
1: Steve, it was not too long ago, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I guess, that the B.C. government came out with that naughty list for municipalities that uh, weren't doing enough for in the housing crisis. Has that had any impact on the real estate industry around the Lower Mainland?
4: I think the big thing is, well, I know that all levels of government certainly are doing their best to try to encourage supply. At the end of the day, uh, it's really hard to ramp up Uh, housing construction when your cost of capital, you know, the cost of financing the construction triples uh, in the span of 12 months. I mean, that's a huge input cost um, into your project. And so a lot of these projects that might have been built or would have been built, uh, they're no longer financially feasible. That's just the reality. And so I do actually think we're going we are seeing it, we're seeing a a sharp drop off uh and building permits being put through and, and the projects that are already in the pipeline you know multifamily projects that were pushed through rezoning applications and already have a hole in the ground they're they're, they're, they're having to move forward um so those projects are still getting built but i think what you're going to see uh is is really on the supply side uh you'll see these impacts you know two three four years down the
1: road Okay, Steve, stay with us. I think our listeners are going to have a lot of questions and perhaps some comments. Tell me what you think or ask Steve a question about prices and the home real estate market as it is right now heading into the fall. Give us a call. Perhaps an aha moment or not, but one report finding that 93% of Detached homes in the districts in Canada, in the major markets that were surveyed, including the Real Estate Board of uh, Greater Vancouver and the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board, and also those back east, found that the single detached homes this time over last year at this time have dropped in price. That may be just a bit of a dip that we can't explain. Your thoughts, 604-280-9898. Our guest, Still with us is Steve Soretsky, realtor and founder of the Soretsky Group. But let's go over to White Rock and James. James, what's on your mind?
2: Uh, Thanks for taking my call. I'm a tradesman and I build houses. And I build houses in Alberta and Calgary and in British Columbia. And I think the thing that everyone has to worry about right now is you guys are losing tradesmen like crazy to Calgary and Edmonton. Because the prices for tradesmen are higher. There's less complication and less work in building the houses. So before anybody worries about the price of housing, you got to worry about who's actually going to build them. It's A lot of guys are leaving because right now developers that have three or four stage buildings are putting a kibosh on stage three and stage four because the profitability for sale is not there. It has nothing to do with pre-sales. They're just not making as much money as they did in 2021 on the exact same condo across the firebreak. Okay,
1: James, great call, and I've heard this before from some people. When it comes to the trades and the cost of uh, building some of the houses and the supply of tradespeople, Steve, is that a factor that you continue to hear about?
4: Yeah, I think like for the trade side, uh, we know like, you know, for example, if you're building in Vancouver, uh, you know, you're going to pay the west side premium, which is like the reality is a lot of these trades uh, people are, are driving in from the Fraser Valley, right? And so that's all going to get tacked on to to commute times and, and cost of living, et cetera. So, uh, you know, trades have always been in, I think, in short supply. Um, and I don't think that's any different. I know, I mean, obviously, the exodus to Alberta and Calgary in particular, I think, is well documented.
1: What do we do about that exodus? I mean, this is... Okay, my bias coming out. The Lower Mainland is the best place in the country to live in. There you go. I said it. Um, But we lose people because the prices are just not affordable in a country that's not affordable. What can be done? Is it ever going to change? Or do you just have to get in the market and suck it up?
4: Well, I think we're going to be talking about housing affordability 10 years from now. Uh, So I think the, the real, I think, ultimately what we need to do is build a lot more purpose-built rental housing, uh, you know, give people a viable alternative to, to home ownership. And that's, you know, secured purpose-built uh, rental buildings, which, which we really haven't been building a lot uh, since the 1970s. And so I know, that, again, governments are, are doing some, uh, some work towards there, but I think there's still a lot more levers that we can pull to get that done.
1: Absolutely, and we're hearing more of that. It just has to be the investment in it, I suppose. Steve, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs
4: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible as we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder
1: made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, thanks for being with us this afternoon. Bruce Claggett in for Jazz Joe Hall. So David Eby, along with two of his cabinet ministers, had that field trip to the Okanagan and some other areas devastated by the wildfires. And here are some news that came out this afternoon on behalf of one of those ministers Emergency Management Minister Bowen Maw, and I quote, She said, "...the emergency order we put in place on Saturday has had the effect we required, and thousands of hotel rooms were made available for people forced from their homes, as well as the many firefighters and emergency crews who are protecting us during the worst wildfire season in our history." Working with local governments and First Nations, we will continue to place people in the accommodations that are now available. And Minister bowen Ma goes on to say that because of this, we are lifting the travel restrictions for the purpose of staying in temporary accommodation for most of the southern interior, with the exception of West Kelowna. That order, by the way, will be lifted for areas including Kelowna itself, Kamloops, Oliver, Asoyus, Penticton, and Vernon. And that starts tonight at midnight. So it's trying to get back to normal, but where normal is not where we're seeing anything close to normal, because there's still widespread destruction, is in West Kelowna, ground zero. And many of us know this for the wine country there. And I'm just pulling up the website from one of the wineries, Niche Wine Company. And on their website, the landing page, it says, closed due to wildfire. We are closed until further notice the McDougal Creek Wildfire, which is now a complex wildfire. They changed the name. It's currently raging in our beautiful backyard. And this means we are unable to host you at the farm or ship wine ordered online right now. It's one of the impacts, and it is a big impact for an entire sector that we're somewhat familiar with. Let's bring in Joanna Schlosser as our guest, the co-founder and CEO of Niche Wine. Thanks so much, Joanna, for joining us.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, I understand you live in the area, and I don't even want to get into the business side. Are you okay, or did you lose your home?
6: So, we are okay. We're safe. Uh, We were evacuated from the winery uh, at 5 p.m. on Thursday, and we were evacuated from our home in Wilden across the lake uh, at 10 p.m. on Thursday night. So within five hours, we experienced two different, very different evacuations. Um, And currently, we are fortunate enough to be staying with the good people at Quail's Gate
1: Winery. Now, there are so many wineries uh, in West Kelowna itself, and I have to wonder if this is going to have a tremendous impact on you and some of your neighbouring businesses?
6: Well, there's no question. I mean, uh, as you know, here in wine country, the summer months and the shoulder seasons are pretty important for us in terms of wine tourism. Uh, The end of August, September, and even into October, we see some of our more high uh, wine-involved consumers coming to the Okanagan to buy wine. Um, It's also a great... uh, time to be selling wine online is there's usually a lot of new wine releases that happened around this time Uh, and so not being able to uh, host people here certainly puts us at a disadvantage. Um, I think a big thing that uh, we haven't really heard a lot of talk about yet is also that Um, harvest is at our back door. You know, it's like almost September. uh, People who are doing sparkling have fruit coming in already and farming doesn't take a vacation. So we're talking about having to figure out the agriculture side uh, throughout this crisis and it's complex.
1: And there's so much to talk about when it comes to the harvest, not only the harvest itself, the impact on grapes, but also on some of the labor that may be a little reluctant if you're bringing in others. I don't know. We'll talk about that after the break, but I want to first ask you a little bit more about that uh, that business of visits that happened in August that you mentioned. How important is that to the wine in- industry? Because I almost think that it's just um, kind of like a hello, here we are and the real business is what you see in the shops and uh online but that may not be the case what is kind of like these what happens in the sector
6: yeah i mean i think every winery has their own unique mix of how they do their sales you know we sell wine in Restaurants, we sell them in liquor stores, we sell them online and we sell uh, on site here, you know, at the different wineries. Uh, So every winery will have their own unique mix of how they want to do that. But I think the reality is, is that being able to sell direct to consumer on site at the property where you make the wine is really the most ideal way to do that, Um, especially for the customer, like being able to be where wine is about place. So being able to be where the wine is made in the vineyard, it helps to create an emotional connection. You know, we have people all the time talk about, you know, they were here for an engagement. They were here for an anniversary. They were here for a special 40th birthday. And those kind of connections are really almost impossible to make virtually.
1: Yeah. And understandably, you can't have the winery open right now. But uh, at Niche Wine Company, uh, how close were the flames to the winery itself?
6: Uh, great question. So uh, Niche is located at the base of the McDougal Rim Trail. And so we were kind of directly in the line of fire. We were the first to be uh, put on evacuation alert and the first to be evacuated. So Thursday at 5. Um, from we, we don't have confirmation, but from what we can see through security cameras and uh, you know, that kind of intel is that our f- the, the flames came right to the fence line, they burnt the fence that our equipment shed is gone our tractor is gone, but the winery building is still standing and the vineyard is still green. Wow. So uh, in terms of like you know, small miracles, we are definitely uh, feeling pretty lucky that um, there's still something standing, uh, but really fire on all sides.
1: Joanna, I know you talk with uh, other wineries in the area, of course, you're all part of the same industry. Uh, Mm -hmm. Have you heard of any other losses uh, like you've suffered, even if it's minor from other wineries?
6: Uh, So in terms of actual equipment or building damage, Uh, not in West Kelowna. But, you know, we're a community of lots of different team members. And so, um, you know, we have wineries big and small through the West Side Wine Trail. And so that means a lot of people. And so there have been homes lost. There have been... You know, rental apartments lost. Or you know, there's a it's a it's going to be a long road to
1: recovery. Much like the Lower Mainland, the skies did clear up a little bit around the Kelowna area, and over in West Kelowna. That gave an opportunity for many people to get a better assessment of some of the damage to structures in the area from the fires that started really getting very bad on Thursday night and continue to be a problem all the way through the weekend. Not that they're not a problem right now. West Kelowna, of course, is still under that evacuation order for many areas and uh, it is not An area you're able to go to even after tonight when they start lifting some of the travel restrictions for the rest of the province. Yeah, West Kelowna is still going to be under a travel restriction. We have been talking with Joanna Schlosser, co-founder and CEO of Niche Wine Company in West Kelowna. She shared with us just before the break the fact that the flames came right up to a fence and that uh, she did lose a tractor and uh, a shed, I think. Is that right, Joanna? That's
6: right. We lost an equipment shed, yes.
1: Yeah, so there was some damage, but of course, we're looking into the future at this point. And it being late August, uh, we're getting ready almost for harvest. Uh, This is a time of the year, if I think right, uh, where you're starting to see the grapes become really visible and notable. And uh, you start to think about harvest. What are the challenges now for you and for those in West Kelowna?
6: Uh, yeah, I think there's a few things. Obviously, people. We want our people to feel safe, and we want them to feel safe like they have a place to live and also feel safe in their work environment. Um, so managing air quality and starting to think about those kinds of things. Uh, West Kelowna also has a pretty big water issue at the moment, so understanding what that looks like in terms of uh, safety for people, that's thats first and foremost. Um, second, I think uh, just managing, you know, we we grow... Uh, grapes here on the estate, but we also bring grapes from other places. So when I think about, you know, we have grapes that are coming from Kamloops that are supposed to be here in less than 10 days, but with highway closures and the need to keep the roads clear for frontline workers, it's really going to be a balancing act of figuring out how how to make this happen in a, in a seamless
1: way. Let's talk about the wine itself. I mean, everybody is wanting the best wine possible And that comes down to so many different things, not the least of which is the weather in any one year. This has Mm -hmm. been a drought year and now a forest fire year and you've got the smoke. What's going to happen to the wine for 2023?
6: That's a really interesting question. You know, in in the Okanagan over the last three years, we've had a heat dome. We've had multiple uh, or two different cold winter events Um, So we've faced challenges and over the last 20 years, you know, this isn't the first fire we've seen in the Okanagan. So I think, you know, our industry as a whole has become really good at being resilient and creative and innovative and finding different ways to make the best possible quality wine with every vintage. And let's uh, also remember uh, agriculture, is the root of wine, we're farmers. And if there's a problem to solve, there's no one I'd rather have on the case than a farmer.
1: Oh, Absolutely. And I would imagine you've already had backup plans for a lack of water.
6: Absolutely. I feel like most farms do. You know, you kind of need to have uh, multiple irons in the fire, as it were, uh, to make sure that you, you have kind of those contingency plans. So, And then I feel like, you know, as an example with Niche, Uh, There's certain things that are going to be out of our control for the next couple of weeks, and our whole community has really rallied around us to make sure uh, that we're sharing resources and keeping each other in care. So um, in a tough situation, our community comes through again and again.
1: Remind me, because I think that I remember some years ago with uh, one of the fires in the area, that there was a winery, at least one winery, that started to build the smoke into their marketing campaign and it wasn't that the wine was ruined. It was very different tasting.
6: Yeah. So I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but I did live here uh, during the 2003 fires when St. Hubertus was so devastatingly affected. Uh, I remember the shirts they had with the image and the caption read, and you thought you were having a bad day. Uh, And it just showed their entire vineyard on fire uh, and I believe they did a fireman's red and some different things. So um, I think the reality is everyone's palate is different. You know, what if one person is different than another. Uh, and smoke uh, or smokiness or tobacco, for example, is yeah. certainly a flavor profile. We see when uh, wines are oaked and aged in a certain way. Uh, and so there'll be people that will uh, be more sensitive to that than others.
1: So you might get uh, hints of McDougal Creek smoke or uh, uh, yellow pine smoke, I guess, in the grape itself.
6: Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say you might, but I I do feel like it's really too early to tell. A a lot of the issue with viticulture is like every stage is different. So when you think about when the grape flowers, when, when the fruit forms, when veraison happens, and that means the, the grape changes from, from green into red. Um, there, at all of those different stages, the environment impacts it differently. And so, you know, depending on where we are, when the fire takes place and how close we are to the fire, all of these things have an impact. So it's really, it's just too early to say what kind of impact this is going to have.
1: Absolutely. Joanna, are you going to be seeking some sort of help from uh, provincial federal governments?
6: Uh, I feel like at this point, James and I are going to slowly put the pieces of our life back together. We're feeling very cared for by our community and we're very, very excited to get back to some kind of normal uh, where we can host people at the farm, where we can do the harvest, where we can make wine. Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways that if there's people looking out there to support, uh, buy BC, buy BC wine, buy BC products, shop local, shop small. Um, I think that's a really excellent way to support and also mark your calendar for 2024 and come and
1: see us. Well, Ordinarily, are you open in the fall and going into the winter or is it just summer?
6: Uh, we're typically open into the fall and then we usually open in the winter for some holiday excitement. And then we'll be open even at Valentine's day. We do the West side wine trail does an event where you can tour all the different wineries and, you know, have wine and eat chocolate. Um, so I think there's lots of opportunities throughout the winter to engage with the West side wine trail and BC wine in general. Um, so I would say keep your eyes open for our uh, keep follow along with the recovery effort and uh, please come and see us when it makes sense and find ways to plug in.
1: Joanna, thanks so much for sharing your story and your situation there and we wish you all the best coming up to Harvest and the months ahead.
6: Thank you so much.